This is Our Voices on the Yard. Welcome to Our Voices on the Yard, where Black artistic excellence meets everyday life. I'm your host, Denise Woods, and I'm going to take you from the Black church to the bright lights of Broadway, from tiny music studios to the mega stages of international opera houses, from rustic dance studios to ornate vaudeville theaters. Join me as we explore and celebrate the achievements of the Black artists that attended conservatories and fine arts programs around the world, starting with my very own, the Juilliard School. This is Our Voices on the Yard. Yes, Our Voices. The voice that you are getting ready to hear is the voice of Lisa Whitfield, a viola player that went to Juilliard in the 90s when I taught there. She was one of the first students I met who was not in the drama division, and we bonded. We bonded on so many levels because of First of all, our insecurities as artists, as women, as Black women in that space. And she was the first person that I felt comfortable enough to talk to, not as a faculty member, but as a sister. It could be because she was a graduate student and she was older than the students I taught, but I really got close to this woman. And you'll see that. I get emotional because she is so vulnerable in this interview, and she brought that out in me. And I think you're going to get another slice of what it is to be Black, to be female, to be exceptional in a classical space. She really talked about institutional racism. She talked about sexism. She talked about classism. She talked about not having the support of her family, which was unusual because to the person, everyone has the support of their family, especially when they get into Juilliard, not for Lisa. This woman had to fight for everything. And she not only fought but she landed on her feet. You're going to be so thrilled to hear her story. So sit back, get ready. You're in for a ride. Welcome to Our Voices Thank on the you. Yard. This is truly Our Voices on the Yard because it really yes, is it a is. shared voice, right? Although we were in completely different division, we were there at different times. Yes. The, the connection that we shared while you were at Juilliard was so profound. And it, and it has been with all of my guests. And that's why I wanted this first season to be, to, be, to be layered with people that I knew, that I had a connection to at Juilliard. Albeit it may not have been in the drama division. I may not have taught you. No. But there was a connection because you were my sister. So... I want to start with this question, oh. and it's going to open up the it's going to open up the door for everything else. Uh oh! <laughs> I need to know how. The, I, <laughs> I need to know. Oh, it's on now. <laughs> I totally need to know how the viola found you. How did the viola, not the violin, not the cello? How did that instrument find you? Because it feels that it found you and called you and said, I need you to play me. That's a funny story. That's a funny story. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I just want to say I'm really happy to be here with you, Denise. It's a pleasure and an honor and a privilege to talk to you. You were very influential in my life at Juilliard. You had just come to Juilliard to work. So I was still a student and you were you know, you weren't a colleague. You're right. It was a sisterhood. And it was wonderful to it see was. someone who had been through the experience and still alive and thriving and <laughs> mentally healthy. Because <laughs> I wasn't sure that was going to be okay for me. So how did the viola find me? Okay. Originally, it wasn't the viola that called me. 
Originally, it was the French horn that called me. I was eight what? years old. I, oh yeah, yeah, I know. It's a weird story, but bear with me. It, it, it loops back around to the viola, I promise. I was eight years old and I grew up in Philadelphia. There were two kids from Curtis Institute who came to my school to my music class that shows you how old I am. There was still music in the schools in Philadelphia when I was there, right? So yes. they came in and one played violin and the other played French horn. And my aunt Marianne, who's nine years older than me, played French horn in high school. And I was just like, I want to play the French horn. I have to play the French horn. Now, Marianne was kind of the black sheep of the family. <laughs> and my parents did not like her having any influence over me. So they came up with a song and dance number that essentially said, uh, it's too heavy for you. You can't carry that. I know. I know. As a parent now, I, I'm almost impressed, but it still sucked. So the <laughs> next day I came home and I said, I want to play the violin. I picked it up. It's not too heavy. Here's the paperwork. <laughs> so I started playing violin when I was eight. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to learn how to negotiate with parents like that. You got you to find those openings. <laughs> <laughs> so I started playing violin when I was eight. And I was really excited to play an instrument. I cool. was innately musical in ways that I didn't understand. Yeah. And it spoke to me in a language that no one else around me seemed to know. And <sighs> it, it served to further set me apart from my parents because they were not only not artistic, they were not encouraging. Mm. They were not in any way encouraging. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that both of, my, both of my parents are gone and I would never speak ill of them out of respect because for better or for worse, they raised me. And I am who right. I am today, either because of, spite of them. So it really doesn't matter. Yeah, they were not, they were not having the whole artistic anything. So their worst nightmare happened. I, I was good at it. <laughs> and when I was 13, somebody needed me to play viola in a string quartet. So I did. And I played both intermittently for two or three years. And then in high school, I was probably in 11th grade. I started to play viola full time and I, you know, violas, violas back then were like black women in the eighties. Everybody wanted one. Everybody wanted a token black woman. You know what I mean? There was like, oh, I do. We need a black woman. We need a black woman. You know, we were in <laughs> vogue, you know, it was great. So with violists, they, they gave me a scholarship and everything, and I was excited. And I think it was made even funnier by the fact that I was a Black woman playing the viola. So there's a joke in there somewhere, but that was what happened. And I had no intention of becoming a musician. That was not the plan. I went to Oberlin for my undergrad. I had always wanted to go to Oberlin. It was a, a really big thing for me, first institution to graduate you know, a black undergraduate, a woman who was black yes, as an undergraduate. Absolutely. I'm like, and wait, and so, and Lisa, you knew that history. You knew that history back then. I did. I did know that history back then. Wow. Cause I didn't know that until I was well into my thirties about Oberlin and, right. and the history of, of African, that, Af that first African-American woman. So you knew that back yes. then and you knew that you wanted to go to Oberlin. You just didn't realize it was going to be for music. Oh, I really didn't realize it was going to be for music. I was completely, I had gotten right. into the college. I was going to major in romance languages. I was going to move what? to New York and become a UN interpreter. That was it. That was the dream. That was the box. It was all wrapped in everything. I know. No, I don't tell this story to a whole lot of people because most people look at me and go, wait a minute, you've always been a musician. I'm like, yes and no. My parents weren't, my parents weren't having it. They really were not having it. It was not on the yeah. list of acceptable things for a smart black girl to do for them. 
It just wasn't. Mm-hmm. They were not encouraging. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I came to Oberlin and I auditioned for secondary lessons because I wanted to continue to play. I just, you know, I wanted to continue to play. And my teacher, who I'm still very close with today, said to me, um, you, you know you should do this, right? I was like, really? Yes. Yeah, you should. You should. Have you ever thought about it? I was like, I didn't think I was good enough. He goes, yeah, you're good enough. You could do this. So I was in the double degree program here at Oberlin for two years. I was going to get two degrees. Wow. I was going to get a conservatory degree and a college degree. I know it's weird when you're smart and you have like musical talent because you get pulled. And I, I don't. Ooh, that sounded like so incredibly egotistical. And I'm not that person no, at all. No, no, no. That didn't sound not egotistical at all. That didn't sound egotistical at all. It sounded really humbling and factual because in that pull, that, that, that gravitational pull of do I go the academic track? Do I go the artistic track? There comes a lot of pain and anguish and a lot of you know, insecurity yeah. that comes, that comes with it. So no, it didn't sound egotistical right. at all. Yeah. I think a lot of it also, and, and I was talking about this with other friends of mine about black excellence and the idea of letting your family down somehow. Oh, Neither of my, girl. I know, you know, I know, you know, <laughs> I know, you know, mm-hmm. um, Neither of my parents finished college. They both attended college, but weren't able to finish. Um, Mm -hmm. And my grandmother had an eighth grade education because Mm -hmm. she grew up on a sharecropping farm down in North Carolina. And that was what you got when you were were 13. They pulled you out of school because you needed to work. You needed to, you know, earn a living and do some stuff around the house and all that. And girls were not. They weren't getting that education. Mm -hmm. So it was really important to me to make sure my family was proud of me, to make sure that I felt like I carried the burden of dashed expectations. Like I had to fulfill somebody else's dream. And that was rough. That was really, really rough, Denise. I could tell you that that was a hard one for me. My parents were just not. I remember my mother. How did it? Huh? How did it show? Okay, I was going to say, how did it show up? And you're getting ready to tell me. I I remember my mother telling me very honestly and openly, you know, black people don't do that. And I was just like, oh, well, I'm black and I'm I'm doing this and I like it (laughs) and I really don't believe I'm the first one, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So yeah, it it was. I just remember kind of looking at her like. Am I supposed to just blindly take your word for that? Because I don't really, I don't really feel like you're right on this one. That was hard. It was really, really hard. Like my parents just, when I say they weren't encouraging, I I can't stress enough. This was a hobby. This was a a fluke. This was a thing I did on the side, but I was going to get a real job. And that was not how that worked. It, it just was not how it worked. At the end of two years of Oberlin, I dropped out of the college. And I, and you know, stayed the whole in the thing conservatory. about the UN interpreter, I stayed in the conservatory. The UN interpreter thing went out the window. All, it all went out the window. Um, my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband of 30 years, looked at me and <laughs> said, you don't want to do that. He knew. He knew. I I know that you have probably in your life had relationships, a family member, a girlfriend, a a romantic partner, whatever, of somebody who just sees you so clearly that you just, you can't even believe that you've ever been seen that way. It's that wonderful 1 Corinthians, St. Paul thing about seeing only through a glass darkly, but, but then I will be truly known. If, if if heaven is anything like the vision that my husband has of me and the way he sees me, then I want to go to heaven because this man sees uh, me. He understands uh, me in ways 
that it took me years to understand myself. But he was always there just saying the things out loud that I couldn't. And I'm, I'm, I can't even tell you how blessed I, I feel to have had him in my life for all these years. It, uh, whew, it's truly. been a journey. It was a real journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Long story well, short, let's, let's go. that's how Viola let's, chose me. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, honey. <laughs> no, that's just how the Viola chose me. I want to know. Okay, so it cho- it because it really did. I mean, because you, it seems like you had to really jump through hoops, and oh, yeah. and and really sort of put your, you know, you know, just put your flag in the sand and say, no, this is what it's going to be, family. I'm I'm doing this. So when that happens, how do you get to Juilliard? How do you get to Juilliard as a graduate <laughs> student? Okay, so so this is the this is the precursor to opening up the entire kettle of worms. <laughs> oh, it, a lot of worms, a lot of worms. Yeah, how did I skeletons get to do it? in the closet? I, you know what? There are days when I'm still not sure. Like it just kind of happened, and really, it. Well, remember the whole the whole majoring in music thing. That happened. It just kind of yes. like things happened. Mm. So when I dropped out of the college here, I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I was done. I really wasn't. And my teacher was really such a wonderful, nurturing man. I, I love him to this day. He's a wonderful human being. His wife is also a violist. Which just shows you violists can be married to each other. Violinists, not so much, but violists can actually be married to each other. And they were both really crucial to me and still are as, as teachers, as mentors, just incredible people. The great pedagogue, Karen Tuttle, who developed the whole coordination method and, and a whole technique around relaxed playing and playing in a way that fits the body, that brings the instrument to you rather than bringing you to the instrument and making you tense. She was teaching at Juilliard. And I played for her in a master class my junior year. And that was one of the best experiences of my life. I, I was really starting to, to come into my own as a musician. I wasn't, there were kids in my studio who were far better than me. Far better than mm-hmm. me. I had catching up to do. Mm-hmm. But Karen saw something in me and really liked me and really wanted to teach me. So she was teaching at Curtis and she was teaching at Juilliard. Now, Curtis is in Philadelphia, as were my parents. And I was like, mm, no, not so much. <laughs> but New York had always been the dream, even when it wasn't Juilliard that was the dream. New York was the dream. So the, the U.N., the U.N. I applied to Juilliard. Yep. Mm-hmm. I applied to mm-hmm. Juilliard and I auditioned for Juilliard and I got into Juilliard. And I'm still every now and then I remember that letter. I remember the whole package came because that was when you got everything in the mail. You didn't get an electronic thing that said welcome with the confetti and everything. It was just a big old thick packet. <laughs> welcome to Juilliard. Give me all your money. <laughs> And I got good scholarships. I shouldn't say give me all your money because I did get good scholarships and Juilliard was good to me. I will say that. Mm. Financially, they were really good. But yeah, that was incredible. I just remember seeing that and Juilliard was never on my radar. It was never something I expected. It was never, it was never something I thought would be part of my story. It really, really wasn't. So when it became part of my story, it was a shock, but it was a good shock. Mm. Um, there were only two people in the whole world who were not impressed. Guess who? Your husband. My parents. They weren't happy. Oh, no. I, Denise. I'm telling you. And when was... you know, and the reason why I said your the reason why I said your husband, because when you said not impressed, I just looked at it like, oh, he 
he wasn't impressed because that was the natural trajectory in his mind. He expected it. Like it was no big deal. It was like, yeah, well, that's where you belong. That's why I said your husband, you know, because not impressed in a good way because yeah, that's where you belong. But no, even the other with your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Juilliard is an impressive name. I tell you, and, and this is something that I still do to this day. I tell people I moved to New York to go to grad school. I don't immediately tell them I went to Juilliard because Juilliard is a conversation ender. You tell people you went to Juilliard and all of a sudden it's like, and I don't <laughs> like doing that. It's because I'm going to tell you, I do tell people I went to Juilliard. I uh-huh. tell people I went to Juilliard because I wasn't in the music division. Right. And being in the drama division is a conversation starter as opposed to it in the music division. It like, boom, puts kibosh on this, on the, on the conversation. Drama division is like, oh my God. And then this is what I say. And I was there when Robin Williams was there. And there you go. The conversation is just like, right. Everything blows up and it's great. Right. In a separate conversation. Can I I, ask you about Robin Williams? Cause I love him. But but that's a separate issue. That's a whole separate issue. He was, yeah, big fan, huge fan. But I can totally understand it stopping, stopping people in their tracks when you're a musician, an opera singer, and you say, I went to Juilliard. And not to say that it, just historically what that means, you know, not to say that one division was greater than another, but just historically what that means. It's like, right, yeah. So, so you would never say, you would never say you went to Juilliard. Rarely. I mean, it's not that I keep it a secret. I tell people, but like if I just met you or it's a conversation where it's pretty low key, if I tell you I went to New York to go to grad school, you have to ask me where I went for me to tell you. Wow. Like you have to follow up and go, oh, where'd you go? I go, oh, I, okay. I went to New York, you know, and I'll try, I'll, I'll try and just like slide past it because gotcha. there's still a little bit of imposter syndrome, which is weird. All right. We got to, un- we have because to unpack that, Sid. We have to unpack it. <laughs> you can't just and drop I it and leave 29 it. years ago. Think about that. 29 years ago. And I still feel it. it I still there's the part of me that that feels like I don't want these people to think I'm bragging. But there's that other little part of me that doesn't want people to look at me and go, you went to Juilliard and this is all you got? Oh, you know what I mean? Oh, man. I do. I do. Yeah. And, and do. that's, Juilliard is a loaded word. Everybody knows Juilliard. You can be yeah. somebody laying bricks in Iowa and you'll be like, <laughs> I heard of that place. <laughs> everybody knows the name and, and mm-hmm. everybody knows the name throughout the entire world. The whole world knows that name. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's hard for me. It's, it's definitely hard for me because I'm not a person who likes to brag like that. Yeah. And the, um, the weight that the name carries. And I was saying that when in my conversation about Juilliard, it's a conversation starter, not because I'm in any way bragging because that is so not who I am. It's a conversation starter right. because it's fun to talk about these folks back when, you know, when I knew them back when right. I got so many wonderful Robin Williams stories, it's ridiculous. And it really is an, an icebreaker. And and a myriad of other people that were there in the in the mid mid early and mid 70s. Of course, I was there in the mid 70s to the late 70s, but my upperclassmen who then became stars, you know, and to see who they were before right. they were stars, it's really like a conversation piece. It opens up and, and it really sort of debunks the mystique of, of the Juilliard school in some way, yeah. you know? That, mm-hmm. That's really interesting that you say that. The mystique is interesting, but 
you know, I'm I'm still friends with folks who were there in other divisions and in the music division. But Viola was there so when I was there. Say that again. Viola Davis was there when you were there. So let's yeah. talk about and your time at Juilliard, because I want the audience to know that you spent several years at Juilliard. You spent several years at Juilliard, okay. not just as a graduate student, but also on faculty. And that is huge. That is huge because not everybody who goes to Juilliard is invited back to join the faculty. So congratulations. Yeah. I Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I'll just let me take that back. Let me stop. Thank you. That wasn't a question. That was a statement. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Let's start first year yes. orientation. And let's just go in. You've got your viola in your hand and something that you said to me, let's just let, I'm just going to say it. And you can, you can unpack that, this statement, people would come okay. to you with viola case in hand. And when you shared this with me, I saw it because you say I'd be out in on the fifth floor in front of the library. Mm -hmm. And someone would say, are you a singer? With my viola case in my hand. Let's let let let's start there. I wish I had <laughs> I wish I had a nickel for every time that happened, Denise. I really do. I really, really do. I would be a wealthy woman. Past rich, <laughs> I'd be wealthy. Um it it was it was really weird. It was really, really weird. I was used to being one of the only women of color. I was used to that. That wasn't a problem. What I was not used to was being doubted. I was not used to somebody looking at me and, and doubting that I could be the thing I presented myself as. Hmm. And it wasn't a mystery. I knew why somebody was looking at me and saying, are you a singer? I totally understood that. If I had been an actress, if I had been a dancer, if I had been a singer, all of those things would have made sense to the people who asked me that question. But not only was I a musician, and singers are musicians, by the way. Let me just put that out yes. there. Singers are musicians. I was an instrumentalist. Not only was I an instrumentalist, I played a string instrument. And I played a string instrument well enough to get me into Juilliard. And that did not compute. With a lot of people. Yes. It did not compute. And yes. I mean, it was downright offensive. It, it was just, mm. it was offensive. It was really, really hard because, I mean, it was just straight up racist. There, there's, mm -hmm. there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, you're clearly not one of us. You don't look like mm. the person I think should be doing this thing. Mm. You look like a person who should be doing this other thing. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. How um, did, how did you get around? How did you get around that? Those, those awkward moments when it was just straight up racism looking you in the face uh, pretty much on a monthly weekly you know basis like it's Daily. like it is going <laughs> um the first year was the hardest the first year okay. i wanted to quit i wanted to give up i just wanted to do something else anything else i just i didn't want to deal with it it was too much mm. the first year. It was very, very hard. Mm -hmm. um, my other members of my cohort never took me seriously, didn't think I was particularly good. And mm. I may never have actually heard the words, but I knew they talked about me behind my back. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean the people who were in my, in my studio. I don't think that was it. I had a very encouraging mm -hmm. cohort there. But yeah, it was very difficult. I had to work several jobs to support myself because my parents cut me off in the middle of my junior year of college when they found out. I'm sorry, my senior year of college, they cut me off 
when they found out I was going to Juilliard. They were very upset. <laughs> so yeah, I I did I didn't live near the other folks. I couldn't practice at times that, you know, I couldn't do the other things the other kids did. And mm -hmm. several of them had known each other for years because they'd had the money to go to all these fancy summer programs that I wasn't able to go to. And, you know, they just had careers that were very different. They had lives that were very different. And I was a black girl from a working class background who did not have financial access to the things that they did. And I felt very isolated and alone. It was difficult. Where did you find your tribe? This is the funny thing. I, I, I practically had no friends who were instrumentalists. I had a few, but very few. During orientation, I still remember some of the people I met and they became my tribe. During orientation, I remember meeting Joe Webster. I remember meeting Audra McDonald. Come I remember on now. meeting Chris McKinney. Yes. I remember meeting Edward Lawrence. Yes. I met all these people. These are actors, singers, and, and dancers. Broadway babies. Yes. That was what I... And, and I was accepted. I was yes. accepted by these folks who were not, the thing we had in common was being Black and artistic. That was the thing we had in common. And, you know, I never fit in with the Black community at Oberlin particularly well mm. because it was the opposite problem of my Juilliard experience. At Juilliard, I was the Black girl with no money. At Oberlin, I was the black girl everybody assumed had money. <laughs> and that was hilarious because my financial situation did not change between those two things, but the perception of me changed. Yes. The, the kids who were here at Oberlin with me saw, you know, this light-skinned girl with long hair who plays the viola and must think she cute. Mm. And just assumed. Mm. And made a lot of assumptions, made a lot of assumptions. That's taken a long time to heal as well. That eventually started to heal itself after I graduated from here. But with Juilliard, it was, well, first of all, there weren't a whole lot of Black violinists, violists, or cellists for me to get to know, or double bassists. There were just not a lot of Black instrumentalists. There was one other Black violist. And the president of Juilliard confused us in front of a class once. That was exciting. <laughs> and the worst, the worst part was that when it happened, I was sitting there trying not to show on my face the level of embarrassment I was feeling. And the dean was there. I won't say who the dean was, but... He looked at the president and said, no, it's the other one. <gasps> yeah. Wow. I, okay. I know. It, it, wow. That is one of the most humiliating and embarrassing experiences of my life. Yes. And so, yeah, it was that first year was a nightmare. I, I met you through all of these amazing actors. And, uh -huh. you know, actors that came in and, you know, were doing things because they weren't being cast. They just weren't being cast in major, major main stage shows. And they took it upon themselves to do extracurricular, integrated, collaborative work with other divisions. And uh -huh. that's where I met you because you were in you were in with the sisters. You know, all of the Black girls, the singers, the actresses, the dancers. And then there was Lisa. <laughs> With her viola. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, it was weird. But, that, viola. but that's where I found a sisterhood, a family. Yes. That was the only place I oh, could yes. find a family because there was, there was really nobody else who looked like me in the music division at the time. Not, not an instrumentalist. Singers? Yeah, they were singers. 
There were singers, there were dancers, there were actors, but there were none, no other string players, no other orchestra people who looked like me. And that was so, yeah. it was so frustrating. But the only thing that, that really got me through that first year was the kinship that I had with folks who were doing the, the MLK Day productions, which you know were just, those were like multimedia extravaganzas. Yes. They were incredible. That, that got me through every single year. I still remember. Spearheaded by the wonderful Lori Carter. Lori Carter, we've got to say her yes. name. Lori Carter. Yes, say was, her name. Lori Carter. Yes. Associate Vice President of Juilliard, African-American woman yes. for years who came in and just established the Black voice at Juilliard at, at, yes. at you know, all across the divisions. So, yeah. The, and so that MLK Day was huge for us. And Lori and I became very close. That's yeah. nice. Lori and yeah. I became very close, too. That was a wonderful thing. And that was a friendship that, that lasted many, many, many years. She was an attorney. She was, she was, you know, she had this artistic sensibility and she was also an attorney and came in and just really sort of raised the bar, in my yes. opinion, for the Black experience at Juilliard. You were a part of that. I agree. I was. And I was yeah. lucky to sort of be on the front edge of that front um, edge because we're talking early 90s this was yeah. the early 90s right would you say i i arrived in new york to go to juilliard in august of 1990 so that was literally 32 years ago almost to the date yeah yes so this was a long yes. time ago Lori was great she helped keep me together the yeah as a group of a cohort of black students started to really spend a lot of time together and organize and invite people to come speak. And that was yeah. great. We would have meals. We would just spend time together. It was a wonderful kinship. And that was incredibly important. In the meantime, I'm working 7,000 jobs trying to keep my rent paid and food in my belly. There were days when I literally had no money. And I, I mean, it was, there were days that were a question of, do I eat or do I take the subway home? Wow. And it was bad. It was bad. And I wow. got really, really good at the Gray's Papaya specials. Yes. At 72nd and Broadway. The two hot dogs. And that back then it was 99 cents. You could get <laughs> two hot dogs and a papaya for 99 cents. And there were days, that's all I ate in a day because I had that 99 cents. That's and I was, wow. yeah, it was, those were rough days, Denise. Those were really rough days. Oh, and oh, there were a couple but, of other things that came along and really saved me. Great. One was Mary, Mary Anthony Cox, who was the ear training professor of legend. She was an institution. She had gone to Juilliard as a student. She had taught at Curtis and Juilliard. She had studied with Nadia Boulanger in France. Mm. You, you could not touch this woman's musicianship. You couldn't. You, I mean, and she was a funny thing. She was, oh my God, Mary Anthony was a hoot and a half. She was from Alabama. But she spoke perfectly unaccented French. She was a marvel. She was absolutely a marvel. And I had been misplaced in ear training during my placement exam for various reasons, mostly my own nerves. And mm. my teacher had approached Mrs. Cox and said, yeah, I got this girl. She does not belong in my class. She belongs with you. So after my first semester, I got switched out of the the class I did not belong in and got switched into the class that Mrs. Cox taught. I got a new teaching fellow who was amazing. Mm. And I thrived. I did really, really well because it, it appealed to the academic side of me. And her teaching style in a lot of ways married with the teaching style I had encountered at Oberlin with my viola teacher, 
And it became mm-hmm. really foundational to how I teach even now. Mm. It, it was a very, it, I don't know if you know anything about the Suzuki approach. I um, surely do. Founded by Dr. Suzuki. Absolutely. Well, there you go. You understand. It's, it's the whole thing about building blocks and mastering one block at a time. If you can do this, we can build on that to do this. We can then build on that to do this. And it all clicked into place, made perfect sense to me. And I did beautifully. And I felt really good academically for the first time in a long time. And then at some point, she approached me and said, okay, so you're doing really, really well in my class. So you're going to audition. Not I'd like you to audition. You're going to audition to be one of my teaching fellows. And I was like, say what? Say what? (laughs) What'd you say? (laughs) I mean, that's like God coming down and saying, you know, I've had my eye on you, Lisa. And I've had... I, I want you to be one of my angels. So come on. That's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. That's truly, yes. truly, truly what it felt like. It was yeah. intense. It was intense. And so I auditioned and I had a very difficult situation in the class that I auditioned for. And, you know, there's the part of you where you handle it and you look really calm on the outside, like they say with, with glaciers, there's like this much above the water and this much below yes. the water. That's what yes. it felt like. Because inside, I felt like, oh, shit, I have blown this. This yeah. is not going well at all. Don't you know this woman hired me? <laughs> <laughs> she hired me. And I'm looking at her like, damn, girl, you must be hard up. Like, y'all must not have, like, a whole lineup or nothing. I don't know what's up with you. But they hired me. And, and I was shocked, but I was, I was really honored. And it meant that I could quit some of the 7,000 jobs I was doing. Yes. I yes. also got yes. recommended to teach for the music advancement program when it started its full first year. Well, can you tell our audience what that is? Tell tell the audience what the Music Advancement Program is. The Music Advancement Program was probably one of the vanguard programs in an attempt to get Black and Brown children involved in classical music. Um, I believe it was originally the brainchild of our our former president, Dr. Polisi. But I, I might be... I might be mistaken on a point or two there. But what I will say is that it was very clearly a program to expose black and brown kids to the classical musical arts and give them an opportunity to level the playing field and go out and participate. And that was, that spoke to me in in every language because that that was what I had had. Someone Mm -hmm. had taken me under their wing and put me in a situation where I was exposed and able to do things. So I, I wanted to give back that that's been Mm -hmm. such a huge part of who I am as a, as an artist. It's always Mm -hmm. been, what can I do to give this back? I can't pay it back. I have to pay it forward. How do I pay it forward? And one of the things that I've always done, this is, this is actually the, the, first time in many years that I haven't taught at a settlement school because I taught at the music settlement school. I taught at the music settlement school in New York for 14 years. And then I was at the settlement school in Cleveland for three years because I had been educated at the settlement music school in Philadelphia. Wow. And historic, historic. And I just need you to, to backtrack a bit and tell our audience what settlement school, a settlement school education was like, because I, that's where I trained, you know, on the Lower East right. Side in, in settlement schools. That's so, where I taught. I taught at, at the third, did you teach at the Third Street I Music at School? Third Street, I taught at Third Street Music School oh Settlement. Oh my gosh, that's where I went. 35 East 11th Street from yes, 1990, 1994 to 2008. <sighs> I studied there in the 60s. I was there for 14 years. Wow. 
Wow. Just tell, tell our audience about settlement schools and the importance of Settle them. Settlement schools were, from my knowledge, I might be missing a beat here, but my understanding is that the settlement schools were founded in the early 20th century to provide education mostly to immigrant populations. They were, yes. they were founded in populations that were primarily filled with immigrants from Europe. Right. Um, I know that the one on the Lower East Side definitely was. Typically, uh, in our neighborhood, Eastern European Jews. Yes. Eastern yeah. European Jews were a large part of, part of the population in New York. It was a little less so in Philadelphia. I think it was more Italian and Eastern okay. European non-Jewish immigrants. But okay. definitely a lot of Italian immigrants in, in uh, Philadelphia, which is where I grew up. And I mm -hmm. went to the original to the original settlement, which was at 4th and Queen in Philadelphia. That's where I had my lessons. And it was through wow. settlement that I learned to play the viola. It was yes. through settlement that I first had experiences with chamber music. It was through settlement that I first, I won a scholarship to study with a member of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Wow. And got to, I got to play professionally for the first time at age 17 because of settlement music school. Yes. So. If it weren't for Settlement Music School, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There would be no conversation to be had because I wouldn't be a musician. Yes. So it, it, was, it was the defining experience of my life. When I found out about the music advancement program, I was like, how do I get involved with this? And I literally went to the office of outreach and was just like, I hear you got this program. What's up? <laughs> Come on now. Come on. What you need me yes. to do? I'm here for you. Yeah. I, I started by being an ensemble assistant for the string ensemble. And after a year, they hired me to teach music theory. I taught music theory at MAP from 1992 to 2003. Wow. And that was an incredible experience. I wrote the curriculum for the program. They even had me as head of the classroom studies department for a year. It was intense. It was really, really intense, but I loved it. I loved everything about it. I am still in touch with so many of my former students, both from oh, Third Street and from the music advancement program. I was yes. so proud and pleased to be a part of that. And I've seen yes. so many of those kids go on to, to greatness in, in a number of fields. Some of my students have gone on to careers in music. And I, I don't just mean the ones I taught music theory. I, I mean the ones I taught viola. You'll what? appreciate this. My very first student at Third Street, she came to me. I was 26 and she was 15. Mm. She graduated from high school right after I found out I was pregnant with my first child. Oh, when I left New York in 2008, that student took over my teaching studio. What? Yeah. That's what I I'm was talking so, about. I was so proud. And, and this is a young woman who I identified with her because people doubted her. People doubted that she was going to be able to do it, that she would be able to focus and be a musician. And I was just like, yeah, people said that shit about me, too. <laughs> and I just kept stepping. I would, and people would just keep talking and I'd be like, mm -hmm, I heard you. OK, OK, I'm not listening, but all right, fine. Keep talking. I'm going to keep doing me. Yes. And damn it, if this child didn't get into Juilliard, she didn't go to Juilliard, but she got in. Hey. And I can't I like, tell you, okay. Lisa, I can't, I, I can't tell you how many students of this generation have gotten into Juilliard, musicians particularly, some actors, but mostly musicians, mm -hmm. have gotten into Juilliard and have chosen right. not to go. Yeah. I'm just saying, just, just putting it out there, right. I think because, you know, the brand, people are looking for different things. They're not looking for, you know, necessarily a brand 
or an institution. Right. They're looking, you know, the people want to study with a particular teacher or a particular mindset or t- a, exactly. a, a pedagogical bent that they look at Juilliard right. and say, it's, it doesn't fit who I am. So I, it, it's just really interesting I, that I you totally say she got that. in. Yeah, she got in, but she didn't, she didn't go. How did you go from Third Street Music School, MAP program to pre-college division? And I don't know if that was the trajectory, but <laughs> explain to our audience what the pre-college division is. <laughs> okay. The pre-college division is for young musicians. I don't know what the bottom age is because I swear they get younger and younger every year. The youngest student I ever saw at pre-college was about seven or eight. And these, a lot of the string players or pianists are really just prodigies. They're just prodigious little kids and they come and they study at Juilliard on Saturdays and it's a whole day. And these kids come from all All over the world. I had an ear training student who drove himself to New York from New Jersey every day. I knew there was one girl who took the train down from upstate New York every week. Mm -hmm. Um, There were were kids who would fly in for a month from Germany and other places. I mean, it was was a deal. It was a big deal. If you studied at Juilliard pre-college, you... It was huge. And a lot of the locals who went, went on to come to Juilliard as undergrad and graduate students. I knew several of my colleagues who had studied at Juilliard since they were 10, 12 years old. So when I say I was at Juilliard for 18 years, that's nothing compared to some of these folks who came when they were in pre-college and they just didn't leave. Right. They just never left. And they're in their 40s and they've been there since they were 10. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, those are lifers. Those are just yes. total lifers. My teaching at Juilliard started in 91 with, with MAP and my teaching fellowship. I finished my teaching fellowship in 1994. I graduated in 1993. I did my master's in three years rather than two. And that's a whole other story. I needed more time. I was working yeah. so hard and I just did not have, I did not have the emotional bandwidth to graduate in two years. It was too much Good for me. For you. Good for you for acknowledging so that. So I knew it wasn't going to happen, or at least they'd be calling my name and my representative would be getting my degree because I'd be dead. Yeah. And it would not be good. Because yeah. after all that pain and anguish, you want to walk across that stage and get your own degree. You're not, you're not looking to send a friend. Hello. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Okay. Juilliard began with me as a student in 90. I started teaching in 91. I got married in 92. I graduated in 93. So, yeah, my last year at Juilliard, I was married. (laughs) It was the first year of my marriage. (laughs) Yes. Wow. This is wonderful. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Come back next week for part two. This is Denise Wood saying, you want more? Find us on whatever podcast platform you use. Subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks a lot. See you next time.